The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, Global Editor of Reuters Breaking News in New York. To kick off 2018, we're presenting you my discussion recorded live at Reuters HQ here at Times Square with Nelson Peltz, the founder and chief executive of Tryon Fund Management. We brought Nelson in to kick off the latest edition of our predictions book, which is chock-a-block with insights to help make sense of global markets, economies, and corporate finance. And few people kept Wall Street on its toes like Nelson Peltz did last year. Last February, Tryon took a $3.5 billion stake in one of America's most iconic companies, Procter & Gamble. By the end of the year, despite a lot of opposition from the board of the Pampers and Tide Maker and a war of the words that by some estimates cost $50 million, Nelson had earned a seat on the company's board. It's no mean feat, especially since at the end, it looks like P&G had a sliver more votes in its favor than Nelson might have. Anyway, in our chat, Nelson opened up about lessons he learned from the P&G affair and his ambitions to make the company better and more profitable. Alongside that, we discussed his overall playbook for engaging companies, a discipline he distinguishes from activist investing, as it's commonly described by those of us in the media. We also talked a bit about stock market valuations, Bitcoin, and Donald Trump. Hint, he's kind of a fan. Anyway, give a listen to my chat with Nelson Peltz. So I think we should... Let's make this a little bit, you know, let's relax a little bit here. I want to know how you got in. How did, how did you become this guy who, you take a, a stake in a, in a company's capital and they all start shivering in the boardroom. How, how, did, how did that happen? Well, they, they, there's no need for them to shiver. I mean, when you think about what we do, seriously, what we do is we come with a plan to make that company better. We've never come with a plan to throw out the CEO. We've never come with a plan to embarrass anybody. We always come with a plan that says, look, this is a great company. It's lost this, its way, not for the last quarter or two, but perhaps the last decade. And we've got a plan, and we think it's a good plan. And it's a plan that it warrants discussion in the boardroom with all the facts, because all our work is done outside the boardroom with public information. And we think it's war- it warrants a discussion on how this company should be structured, priced, how they're marketing, whatever the issues are. But it's not meant to be a fight. It's not meant, and I'm going to repeat myself, to embarrass anybody or to unseat the CEO. Now, unfortunately, sometimes it winds up that way, but that's not the objective. The objective is simply to make the company perform better, and to perform better, and this is very important, to perform better on the income statement, that's where we live and breathe, not the balance sheet. If we're proposing three or four more terms of leverage on a company, you don't need us. You can just hire a banker to do that, happily do that for you. We have real ideas on how sales up and expenses down work. Your mug says? That's correct. You have a and, mug and, that says sales up on one side and cash is king on the other. Cash is king. So whenever well. you come to our office, we have a mug and that's what it says on it. And we lose thousands of them every year because people take them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how is that? How does that distinguish you from, say, other? Uh, you, you call yourself an engaged 
shareholder? How is that different from an activist? Because we, uh, of course, shorthand in the media, we say, well, Nelson Peltz, comma, activist investor. Why are we, are we making, why, what's the distinction? You know, the distinction, unfortunately, is what the word activist has come to mean. I think it's come to mean a fight. I think it's come to mean short term. And if you look at our record, when we get on a board at Tryon, we're in that investment for almost seven years, and that, that number is growing. It's not decreasing. So think about that. We don't, we're really not that concerned about the next quarter's numbers because we're going to be around for 28 of them. So it doesn't make a difference to us. We're interested in having management and the board to wear bifocals, okay? The near term is important, but to really have your sights set on the long term, what is the objective, what's the target, share it with your share owners, and tell us the gates that you're going to go through to get there. There also needs to be an ownership mentality in the boardroom, and that's severely lacking. And I'll tell you something, you know, if you look at what happened over the last 25 or 30 years with private equity, there's been a great transfer of wealth, right, from the public markets to the private markets. And people say, well, that's because they leveraged up five, six, seven, eight times, and that's partially true. But one of the big reasons that's overlooked is everybody in that boardroom when a company goes private and everybody senior on the management team of that private company are owners. They're long-term owners. And that's what we try to bring to a boardroom is that ownership mentality. And most of the boards today, if the directors own any stock, it's because it was given to them. They're forced to buy some stock, but they, they can buy it out of their uh, board fees. And so we come in, typically in the companies that we invest in, and we are real owners and there's nobody else in the room who is. And we like them to start thinking that way because they are representatives of the owners of the business. And that's what we want them all to think How about. do you guys identify, I mean, when, when you look at public companies, what are, the, what are the sort of attributes that you look for when you're trying to figure out your next uh, investment? Well, we're looking, number one, for what we think is a great business. A great business that has lost its way and that we have an, a plan for it to get better. That's what we're looking for. P&G meets that criteria. Bank of New York met that criteria. Cadbury did, Kraft did, and, and that goes back to what we used to do before we started a fund. You know, I, I didn't grow up staring at a Bloomberg screen. I, I, I actually ran a It was business. a Reuters screen, I hope. It was a Reuters, absolutely. How, how stupid of me, okay. <laughs> uh, but I didn't. I mean, I, I grew up working for my father in a, in a small family food business and I learned what it was to run a business for free, almost. I mean, there was no SG&A line in that company. And, and that was a food service That was business. a food service business, very small one operating here in New York. And I learned a lot from that. And then when I looked, and I, we did business with big companies like Heinz and Kraft and National Dairy and General Foods, and I saw how sloppy they were, even back in those days how many people it took 
to get something done, how many phone calls and departments you'd have to get through to get an answer. And I said, boy, they got to be making so much money to afford And they did. They made so much money, but they wasted so much money as well. So as an operator, you had insight into, into that. And you've right. now, but of course, between running your father's or grandfather's business right. and starting Tryon, you, he, there were a few things. We did a between. few things in between. I mean, you had, uh, you were, uh, you had a, one of the biggest canning companies. We built the biggest packaging company in the world in the 80s. And you had Snapple. That was kind of like your big home run, wasn't it? You, well, actually, American National Can, which was a Fortune 100 company, which we built, was actually bigger and better than that. But nobody paid much attention to beverage cans. But Snapple was a great deal for us. It was wonderful. Snapple had been sold by Thomas Lee to Quaker Oats for a billion seven. They couldn't run it. It was losing money and sales were dropping double digits. And we bought it for 300 million from Quaker Oats. And a couple of years later, we sold it to um, Cadbury Schweppes for a billion five. But we had really turned that entire company around. We got sales growing, put them in new markets did a lot of very exciting things, and Cadbury was very happy to pay us that much. And then They were then, delighted, I'm sure. Yeah, we they were. I mean, I didn't force them then to you came, Then you came after them a few years later. They must have. Yeah, <laughs> the, but in, in a friendly way, no, in a friendly course. way. I mean, yeah. you know, look. I'm you know, sure they thought it was that. You know, they did. They yeah. did. We, became, we were good friends. You know, yeah. I said, look, you know, your margins at Cadbury, they're just awful. <laughs> I mean, just awful. When you pull out Dr. Pepper Snapple, which was inside of Cadbury, the margins were half Hershey's and half Wrigley's. Right. So, you know, let's get them up. And we did. And they spun Dr. Pepper Snapple onto the New York Stock Exchange off to London. And it did great. It went out in the mid-teens and stock is about 90 today. And then margins at Cadbury were 9%. We got them up to 14%. And then... Kraft uh, bought them, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we sold it to Kraft. We were involved in those negotiations. So can I, can I just, I want to drill down a bit into Procter & Gamble. Maybe before that, your, your thoughts on the markets have gone, you know, have, so, you, you have valuations at pretty high. How do you, in this environment, are you worried, about, is it difficult for you to find underappreciated companies that no, need your not love? Not underappreciated, underperforming. Uh, you know, multiples are high. Mostly it's Fang and Banks. Uh, a lot of the companies that we invest in, earnings have gone up, but multiples have come down. Uh, what we look at as a company is, clearly the multiple is important, but what is the real multiple if they run the business the way we think they should run it? They may be trading at 12 or 13 times EBITDA, but if they run it our way, it might be you know eight or nine. So there's opportunity there, uh, clearly, Entrance price lower is better, but uh, we're going to only buy when we have a real plan to get that get those earnings up. All right, let me ask you just a, another general question before we get there. So, if you if you're successful in getting boards to think like owners, then you guys are basically going to be get out of a job. There'll be no reason for you. Look, if to every exist. company is living up to its full potential, we will give the money back, and I'll go to the beach. But you know. 
I'm, that's one of the concerns I don't have. Okay. <laughs> that, 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 that a lot of concerns well. I do have, but that one doesn't rank anywhere on the list. But certainly, a lot of uh, activist investors, let's say, a lot of people in, who think who are in broadly speaking in your space have stumbled of late. They've had difficulty. They've had some low returns. Um, you know, is is what is that a reflection of? Is that a reflection of the, that there are fewer opportunities or just that they're picking the wrong ones? Look, I, I, I have to do this. I've got to yeah. set ourselves apart from the rest of the pack. We look at ourselves not as a hedge fund. We have long-term capital. We don't hedge. How much capital we, do you have? We have today about $14 billion and, and uh, some uncallable, and, some callable okay. money as well. And... And we look at ourselves really as a derivative of private equity, okay? That's what we really look at ourselves as. And so we're not that concerned, and our investors are not that concerned quarter to quarter, because any of the companies that we're invested in, had they been private, we're very proud of the, of the EPS growth at every one of them and the margin growth. The stock price doesn't always reflect that. Sometimes it gets ahead of itself. Sometimes it gets behind. I mean, Mondelez is a perfect example. We bought the stock in the 20s. Margins were 10 and a fraction percent. When I got on the board in January 14, they're at 17 percent today. The stock has moved, but not moved tremendously because the multiple has come down, you know, and that's something we can't control. The stock is in the 40s. But... But it's been uh, relatively stable because it, it, well, people I hope think it's, that I hope it's not stable. I, we, we think that there's more to go on margin, okay? Uh, but that's the kind of, and APS has grown double digits every year. That's, that's what we look upon as our responsibility. How the market prices it from one year to the next, I can't tell you that. I can't foretell that. Our goal is to get EPS up and EPS up the right way. If we do that, Ultimately, the market will reflect that EPS growth in its price. Is there, can I ask you, does size matter in, in the sense that um, take, I mean, I remember the first time I covered a, um, a proxy fight that you were involved in was Heinz, probably about 10, 11 years ago, something like that. Um, and that was a $12.5 billion company at the time. Yeah. Um, Procter Gamble was a two hundred and thirty billion dollars, twenty times the size. We've all uh, grown. <laughs> is that all it is, or is it, or have you? I mean, is isn't it? Wouldn't it be easier to take a twenty percent stake in a twelve billion dollar company? Of than course a, it would. Of course it would. Look, I think Heinz at the time was a watershed event. I mean, it was an old line company. It wasn't in financial difficulty. It just had ten years of flat to down sales growth and EPS growth. And we had a plan. And we had a great plan for Heinz. And they fought us. And we got two board seats. By the way, the, many of the directors at Heinz, I count as my personal friends, guys who were there then, are very good friends of ours today, of mine particularly. And we then had 32 straight quarters of organic sales growth. Now think about that. They had 10 years of flat to down sales growth. And what had happened is over the period of time, the prior 10 years before we got there, 
advertising as a percentage of sales kept getting cut because they needed to make earnings, and discounts, paying for shelf space, kept going up. So discounts became 22% of sales, and advertising became about 1.5% of sales. That's probably what a steel company spends. I mean, it's a consumer products company. We reversed those numbers. At the end, when we sold the company, advertising had grown to 4% of sales, and we created pull for the product instead of push, okay? And you saw uh, discounts, deals and allowances, shelf space, etc., going from 22% down to 16%. And earnings in the stock went from 30 to uh, 62, 72.50, where it was ultimately sold to Buffett and 3G. And it was a great outing for all shareholders. It stayed A-rated the whole way. There was no extra leverage put on. Dividends went up. Shares went up. So at the end, when you owned Heinz, when we bought it, the dividend was 7% on our original cost of stock. Think about what a nice deal that was. And all they had to do is change the way they looked at life. But why? Why didn't they do it? We didn't tell them, you know, advertise more, and they didn't read that book on marketing. What happens is when you're CEO and in the middle of the quarter your CFO comes running in and says, we are not going to make consensus this quarter, what expense do you have control over in that quarter to affect that, those numbers? You can't shut a factory. You can't lay off people. That will not help that quarter. Yeah. You just shut off the light on advertising, okay? And you staggered through the quarter and you made your numbers. I got to tell you, you don't have very much tailwind in terms of sales for the next quarter. So you keep cutting that tail off an inch at a time, <clears throat> and you wind up with a no-growth company. Right. Okay. So you sell, you got them to sell more ketchup. I mean, it's it's a it's, it sounds somewhat. Isn't that simple? Isn't that simple? That's the business they're in. But Procter and Gamble. Let's go to Procter and Gamble. They have, they have many more product lines. I mean, there's a it's a more complicated company in so many respects, uh, not least the management, the structure of the company, um, which I know you made quite a bit of. I mean, do, maybe talk a little bit about what were the lessons you learned, because this thing, I mean, for people who don't remember, this this went right to the wire. We had a vote at the AG, at the uh, extraordinary meeting. No, it wasn't extraordinary. Was it? it was the annual, annual meeting. meeting where they said that they rushed out, Procter & Gamble rushed out a press release and said, nope, we won, Nelson Peltz, go away. Um, but then you had a recount. This was like this was like Al Gore versus George W. Bush in the end, wasn't it? I mean, you even had your Brooks there, Brothers riot. There was, no, not exactly. It wasn't Al Gore. I mean, what happened there is nobody had a count. Okay, there was no count. They ran out in the annual meeting and said that they had won. I was then interviewed by CNBC, and I said, at that point in time, it is too close to call. Okay, that's my record. Within five minutes of them saying that they won, I said, it's too close to call. Because all we were dealing with at that point in time, and the proxy plumbing is busted, let me tell you that. The proxy system for counting votes in America doesn't work. Because there was no count. There was an estimate, and the estimate wasn't even from an independent. It was the proxy advisor hired by P&G who said you won to P&G. 
okay? And they ran out and said, we won. That's how that statement was made. And they said they won by 0.02%. We said... On that, 2 billion shares that were voted. Two, 2 billion votes, right. 2 billion votes. Okay, so we, we said, you know, that we think that's too close to call. They then, the next five and a half weeks, by law, we didn't call for a recount. That's not what happened. Nobody called for a recount. The law says you've got to post a real number. And there is an independent company that does this. And when they finished five and a half weeks later, they said, we won. Now, I had been speaking to the chairman and the lead director off and on through that five and a half week period. And we had gotten closer and friendlier. And I suggested he put me on the board. No <laughs> he hadn't gotten that message no, yet? No, he hadn't. <laughs> well, I said, but here's why I said it, okay? And see if this makes sense. There were two billion votes cast. Okay, round numbers, I got a billion, they got a billion. Okay, half of their billion <clears throat> were people and institutions and servicers that they paid, paid. So there was a half a billion that were independent. Custodians, investment bankers who had stock, so forth, and employees. So, a lot of employee ownership. And, a lot of yeah. employee ownership. A lot of retail, okay? Huge amount of retail. So then the five, then five and a half weeks later, we get a note that we won. We were clearly happy. But we didn't change our position. We felt you should put us on the board anyway after we showed up with a billion votes. I mean, what's the difference if they got a billion fifty or they got nine fifty? There's no difference in reality. And I think that's what they that they realized. And David Taylor and I, and Jim McNerney a couple of times, but David Taylor and I had lots of very positive conversations. And that's what brought them to have the board meeting on December 15th and put me on the, board on the board and, and put me on the board. And, and, I, and David and I, I think, probably agree on this, that we could have those two billion votes counted four times and you come out with four different answers. You can do it 10 times, 10 answers. And that's the problem with our, our, the proxy system in America today. It doesn't work. I mean, I don't claim to know much about blockchain, but I got to tell you some blockchain could really get you results very quickly, and we could have had an answer. So we, you, on March 1st, you joined the board. Yes. What's the, what are the first, what are, in your, on your to-do list, what are the things you want to talk about with the... Well, directors? first I go through an indoctrination period. But David and I have been talking about some of the things that, that are worthwhile discussing and so forth. And uh, I will be meeting most of the directors for the first time at that point in time. Uh, I'm coming on the board of a guy I know and like very much, Jim, uh, Joe Jimenez, who they're putting on. He, used to, he was at Heinz before I got okay. there, and more recently at Novartis. Uh, and I like Joe. And I intend to meet everybody. And you know, once the fight is over, I've been through this a couple of times, everybody you know, left their weapons at the door and hopefully left their egos <laughs> at the door. And we can then go on and, and do what we're supposed to do, is to represent shareholders and get the company moving a little better in the How do you do, what, what, need, what does it need to do, the company? Well, I mean, I, 
put out 90 That's pages true. You on did. what it needs to do. <laughs> uh, um, right. What, um, let me ask you, one, the, for, for, you've spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of energy to get, to, to get there, to almost not get there. Let me put it that way. Are you worried that there's a sort of free rider question that people like, like try and go out there, spend all this time, and you get all these investors who sort of like, oh yeah, I'll grab on the coattails of Nelson Peltz or Bill Ackman or whoever it is, and say, you know, they spend all the money and we get all the advantage. I mean, is, is there not an issue there? Are you wor- I don't think so, because first of all, if you look at from the time we bought stock to when we announced, I think the number is around 10% bump in the stock, which, you know, John Q. Public misses. Right. And then they don't know when we're going to sell the stock. And that's important. So, look, there is a free ride. And I've got good friends who, you know, they don't give me any money. They just, you know, I got this one, I got that one, I got that one. I said, great, you know. The Peltz portfolio without giving they, you 2% I've got a lot of friends who've got the Tryon portfolio <laughs> unpaid for. But I think they've left a lot on both ends. I really do. What about the index funds? I mean, th- these th- these index, these passive funds, which are getting all the new money going you know, the, from investors. I mean, you know, I don't know what they must have been 15, 20 percent of P&G's share exactly. share base. Um, what what is their role? They all now talk about how you know they're they're making decisions. They're not just checking boxes thanks to ISS or Glass Lewis or breaking views, right. although they should probably do that. <laughs> but um, but I mean, what do you think? Um, what is their role in this, and how, how, is, it, how is it shifting? They, they become the most important factor. They, in P&G, they owned roughly 15% of the outstanding, something less than 20%, more than 20%, pardon me, didn't vote. So that 15% gets damn close to 20%. There's nobody out there who's got close to that kind of three names. That's okay. it's, uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State, State Street. Street. So we have learned to spend a lot of time with them in between proxy votes. And look, they can't... We, we have 20-odd people overseeing eight stock positions. Okay, if, if you would extrapolate that over their portfolio, they couldn't be the cheapest guy in town in terms of how they sell their ETFs. So... I think they've got to learn how to develop relationships with us as we do with them, and there's got to be a level of trust that's built up both ways. And I think the most important thing is that when we leave a stock, and as I say, we're leaving a stock seven years later on average, that that company continues to do well, that we just we don't get the last high tick and then have that thing fall away. We want to make sure that we've left that company in better position than when we found it, and when we leave it, it continues to do good things. And I think that's the best way we can build trust with them. And I think we continually demonstrate that. Because they don't get out. I mean, if it's... They don't get out. They're going to be in it if it's in the index forever. We we say we're the the second longest-term shareholder. After those guys. After those guys. Exactly. What, um, what a quick shift. Dual class share structures. It's something that's um, been a bee in my bonnet for a long time, just looking at the way these, a lot of companies have been able to shield themselves from the disciplines of the market. I mean, you can't be an engaged shareholder if you don't have votes. 
or you have votes that are one-tenth those of the management or the directors. What's your view on the whole? We, we, we don't invest in any of those companies because it's too much of a disadvantage. Uh, my company, Triangle Industries, in the 80s had super voting stock, and I did away with it. What did you, what you mean you just you I converted? Said one share, one vote. And did that have a, did you, do you regret doing that? No. Well, I did, I oh, I did just it. mean in, like, Nobody you know, put a gun to my head to do it. I did it because I felt it was the right thing to do. And we did it. I mean, I own 62% of the company, so it wasn't really, my knees weren't shaken. But, but the fact <laughs> is that, uh, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I think one share, one vote is what really should be. Anything other than that is just wrong. Yeah. Um, what, what's the biggest change you've seen since you've been uh, doing, you know, over the last 30, 40 years in the market? Is there any single thing that stands yes, out? Yes, yes. I mean, look, shareholders are responding to us. If I try to do what we're doing today in the 80s, I mean, I could do a tender offer, but if I try to do what I do in the 80s, I wouldn't get anybody listening, number one. And number two, the attitude of shareholders were either you held your nose and you voted for the board or you sold your stock. There was no third option. There is a third option today. People are taking advantage of it, and you've got examples of it there. Uh, what happens when they do, and good things happen, and the board, and these are good boards, but you know they, they, they forget sometimes, not all the time, who brought them there, why they're there, who they represent, and as a result, they need a reminder sometimes, and I think it's organizations like us that, that do that and make sure that they understand they're serving and they're getting paid a lot to do it. Yeah. They're getting paid, you know, 300,000, um, you know, guys on four boards. He's executed a great retirement plan, you know. And so they don't want to be thrown off a board. They don't want to rock the boat. But on the other hand, they have a responsibility to the share owners and and I think we, we act as a reminder of that, you know. And when we get on a board, we foster good discussion. I think that we're not there before, but we've been told that Mr. So-and-so and Miss So-and-so, who really hadn't said a word for the last year, all of a sudden is asking questions and, 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 and getting involved. Yeah, they're earning their 300 grand. That's correct. Um, how do you rate the Trump presidency so far? And I'm going to ask you about the economics mainly of this, but I, I suspect I won't be able to restrain you on other elements of it. You will not. So what do you think? I mean, you know, the, certainly the tax bill has been, um, I imagine, been a helpful thing as a, someone who owns comp, you know, a large holder of companies. Look, uh, I think that this poor guy has gotten a real bad rap. Part of it is... He did it to himself, okay? But I was asked on TV, what do, I, do I support President Trump? And my answer was a very clear one. I said, when you get on a plane, you root for the pilot, okay? We're on a plane. We want the pilot to land it safely. And what gets me, that election is over, okay? It's done. Stop crying in your beer. 
okay, those of you who voted for Hillary, stop it, okay? And there, what's so sad is there are so many Democrats who want Trump to fail. In effect, they want him to crash the plane. And they're sitting in the plane. I don't understand that. That, and, and I see that way more than I should. So that's what I feel about Trump. Leave the tweets aside and leave some of the other stupid stuff can aside. Can we do that, please? Yeah, we can. We can. <laughs> because part of the tweets, not all of the tweets, part, a few of the tweets serve a purpose. It gets him to get his message out. And instead of defending the New York Times the next day, he gets to get his message out early. And I think that if he limited to that, we'd be better off. But the fact is that we have a tax bill for the first time in, I don't know, forever. 86. Okay. That's a long time. He's, he's reduced the funding to the UN, one of our biggest enemies, a bloated organization that hates America. We treat them like kings, and they don't like anything we do. And I'm thrilled that he reduced the funding there, eliminated the funding to Pakistan until they can prove that they're not harboring terrorists. Okay. And then he made Jerusalem capital, okay? And, and let me tell you, he said this to me. He said, you know, every peace talk that was ever held, the first thing they said, we want to make sure that Jerusalem is not going to be ca the capital. And they agreed. And they still didn't come out with, the, with, with anything that worked. So we took that off the table. The, okay? I mean, but but, but uh, get back taxes... UN, Pakistan. I, I agree with what this guy has done. I, I guess the, the, if you look at the economics of it, so the market has done extremely well, the stock market. Um, the unemployment rate is, keeps getting lower. Um, we, there, are, there, are, there, are lots of, there are lots of things that, despite the noise, certainly have been quite positive from a business and labor perspective. Um, but... I mean, doesn't just the, the level of toxicity of the environment, does, don't you think that's a risk? Of course it is. But is that his fault? Well, he, he is, seems is, to stoke is, it. Is it, is it. He I does mean, seem it, to stoke it, it, Nelson. You know, I'm a member of no labels, okay? I want to get this clear. I'm not some screaming right-wing Republican. I'm a member of no labels. Our goal, and I spend a lot of money funding it, our goal is to bring Washington to the center where it belongs, okay? Not where it is now to the extremes. We gotta bring it back to the center. We have to elect candidates who are willing to cross the aisle, Democrats and Republicans. And we fund Democrats and Republicans in primaries who are willing to be constructive. So, what? I, I, I just, we just decided what he did. He gave us a new tax law, he, stopped, he reduced funding to the UN, and he stopped funding Pakistan. And he's the pilot, like it or not. All right, I want to turn from, I actually want to turn to, to you mentioned pilots. So on those, on the, let's turn to pilots. No, but We have no investment in airline, I'll tell you that. No, but you do have a big investment in General Electric, which makes the... the, the I, yeah, the I noticed that. Yeah, the yeah. engines. Um, it's been a rough one. I, I just want to know what your hopes are for the company and, and, and the turnaround under the new chief executive, John Flannery. Let, let me tell you, the company is made up of some really amazingly high-quality businesses, okay? 
and my partner at Garden is on the board now for about two months. And I think a lot of John, more importantly, he thinks a lot of John. And I think he and John and the remaining board, as you know, the board's going to get smaller, the remaining board, I think, are working very hard to create shareholder value there for the first time in a long time, and I think they're going to be successful. And I'm not going to talk anymore about Gene. You know that. <laughs> I know. I had to, but I couldn't leave. I couldn't let you not, you know, couldn't not ask you that question. Of course, you did. I gave um, you an answer. But, but most, of your, most of your investments have been of U.S.-based companies. Cadbury is an exception. Uh, of course, Denone. I think you were invested in Denone. Uh, Intercontinental Hotel Group. We had three. Okay, so, yeah. I mean, do you think that the overseas, there's, there are lots of ripe pickings? I mean, you've see, started to see more activist investors, uh, Dan Loeb, people like that, go into some of the packaged goods and I food do. businesses. I do, what, 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 I, I do yeah. think there are opportunities. I, I think that the further you go east from London, okay, it's more activism light for the most part because there is not that much democracy, shareholder democracy in those countries. I, pardon me, I think it's getting better. And I think I think France will always be difficult. I think Switzerland's going to get better and better, and Germany seems to be getting better. And, and I think they will improve as shareholder democracy really becomes more of a fact rather than a dream. And many of these, many of these markets actually don't have dual-class share structures. They so don't. So but they have supervisory boards. Right. They have all kinds of other stuff. Right. What about financial companies? You've done a few. You've invested in Lazard, uh, State... Uh, we're Bank on the board York. of You're Bank board of New York, York, Mellon now. We've been in State Street, Leg, Mar Leg Mason. Uh, the kind of financials that we invest in are not financials with balance sheets. So we won't invest in J.P. Morgan or Citibank because we just don't feel we understand their balance sheet. But we will invest in financials that have fee fees. So. State Street was a good investment for us. Bank of New York has been a great investment for us. Leg Mason was pretty good. Lazard was excellent. So those are fee-driven businesses. The income statement is primarily, you know, revenue from uh, third party and advisory fees and all that kind of stuff. And you didn't have any proxy battle, as it were, with them. It was more you no, sort of took no, them. No, no proxy fight. And yeah, brought you on board. What um, can I ask you? Just sort of slightly different engagement this week. Uh, over the weekend, we saw Jana Partners and Calsters um, wrote a letter to the board of Apple saying that you guys need to take. You need to basically put in certain controls or give parents more controls around uh, the use of I, of the iPhone. Or I mean, this is not. This isn't like a. This is a little bit of an, a diversion. It seems to me from the usual activist kind of approach. How do you read this? And is this sort of are they just trying to get in front of some big question, or is this just part of a general ESG? You look, know? look, I've got, and this is why I know a lot, I've got six millennials at home and two Gen Zs, okay? Oh, okay. So I see the phone like this all the time, uh, and when I see it at the dinner table, I say, turn the damn thing upside down and let's talk. But that's reality. I mean, you know, they, they, this is what life is today. Uh, and I'm less concerned about that than I am about the stuff that plays on it, okay? 
so the content the or the, content, the, hard, the is, software yes, or the hardware. Yes, I'm more concerned about that. I don't think, you know, people didn't get mad at RCA when they made a television set, okay? And, and so why should they get so angry at Apple? We, we are big believers in ESG. We have been, as I said earlier, for a very long time. I don't know what they expect Apple to do except, you know, make their phones more expensive, maybe. Do you see yourselves doing any kind of, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, isn't that revenue up, uh, right. expenses down? That's right. Um, what, but do you, do you, I mean, we, one of our, if you look in the book, the predictions book, one of the uh, predictions is that there'll be more shareholder proposals around these kinds of things, in, and including uh, sexual misconduct, things like that. Do you think we're going to see a lot more use of the share of, of the sort of proxy to make bigger social messages clear? Yes. I, look, I'm on a lot of boards, and there isn't a year that we don't have requests to be put in proxy statements about environmental issues. We haven't had any on sexual harassment, but I won't be surprised if it comes. Uh, we get them on how we're treating pigs, okay, for bacon at Wendy's. How we treat- The Baconator. Uh, the Baconator is a phenomenal item and we treat these pigs <laughs> really well. Okay, they're really well. And that the chickens <laughs> have to be free range and so we, we do care about these right. things, and we spend a lot of time on that. We really do. I mean, we do because we get this pushback, and it's important to respond to it. I mean, some of this stuff is ridiculous, but some of it has meaning. And, and frankly, I think you get a better piece of chicken when the chicken is running around than when he's sitting in a cage his whole life. And, I think it's, and we're interested in a better quality chicken. So those are things that go hand in hand. Here's for the chickens. Um, one uh, question, I want to throw it out, to, but I want your thought first. So what's your biggest worry about this year? What, what can upset this whole uh, benign economic and market environment? Well, I don't think it's benign. I think it's going well. But I, what I do think, I worry about something geopolitical. Okay, that's clearly a fear, but that's a fear every year. Uh, and I wish... Uh, that this, I, I wish the Trump drumbeat would go would go down a bit on both sides. Uh, what do you think about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin uh, and tulips? I, yeah, I, that, <laughs> I do. That's what I think. You know, uh, I worry about I worry about cryptocurrency because I think that now that. Goldman is trading the futures on Bitcoin. Let's say Bitcoin had roughly a $300 billion universe. I, I don't mm -hmm. think that's far off. Okay, if that goes up or down, nothing's going to happen. But if they start trading currencies to the tune of 3 or $4 trillion and you have something go wrong, I think that could really hurt things. And I've been assured, because I asked the Department of Treasury about this, and they said they think it'll be regulated, and they are not frightened about it. But I'm giving you my fear. Okay, Steve Mnuchin's on the job. I think he is. Um, I just I want to throw it to the audience, but uh, one thing you and I talked about before was Amazon. You know, this, this machine that's sort of eating the world. Um, 
it's sort of got a Shiva-like destructive quality. Everywhere it goes, it takes down market caps, puts people out of jobs, doesn't pay a lot of taxes, but we all love it as consumers because it's a fantastic service and, and, and product. Uh, how is it affect, you know, you're in the, you have so many businesses in the consumer products area. I suppose it's a double-edged sword for you. Yeah, I mean, an Oreo is still an Oreo, whether you get it on Amazon or you get it at, uh, at the corner store. But it does disturb me. It worries me. Uh, and I think the government ultimately will step in, always too late, and do something about it. Uh, and I think, they've, they've, I, I think they've got it wrong. And if you go back to all the old antitrust laws when they were put in place 100 odd years ago, again, against Standard Oil, it was about vertical integration, right? And then in the 70s, you had a bunch of Chicago economists who changed the interpretation of that law and said, we don't care about vertical integration. We only care about the consumer. Is the consumer benefiting or not based upon uh, pricing? So they eliminated vertical integration. Now, Amazon has got vertical integration better than John D. Rockefeller had it. Okay, they really do an amazing job, and I take my hat off to them. But they swing too much weight around. And if you look, there's one example. If you look at, remember the company diapers.com? Diapers.com was just selling diapers on the internet, and Amazon wanted to buy them. And diapers.com said, we want to stay independent. So what Amazon did is they reduced the price of diapers below cost, benefit to, sh to consumer. Diapers.com said, okay, we'll sell. They bought diapers.com, and the price of diapers then went up, okay? Uh, and when you add that to the fact that it's aided and abetted by the U.S. postal system and lack thereof of state taxes, and the fact that even in China, there's Alibaba and JD, and we're really hard pressed to say that Jet and Google Express are real competitors, yet hopefully they will be. Uh, so my problem is that until there's a real competitor to Amazon, I am concerned. And I think at one point in time or another, the government will step in and do something about it because they are, the government's worried about putting a lot of people out of work. I'm concerned that they control pricing. And, uh, and then there was an interesting piece by Professor Galloway who talked about Alexa. And Alexa is interesting. I don't know if you guys have Alexa, but I got one for Christmas. And I put it in a corner because I'm told that it records what you're saying. So I, I made sure it was someplace where it couldn't hear anything, and I didn't say anything in front of it, except, what's the weather today, Alexa? And uh, You got to do Alexa. You got Alexa first. first. I did. I've okay. That, yeah. That's right. And then the lights come up, and then the answer to weather today is. But uh, what I did try, and there was this column by this Professor Galloway, it said that that if you order on a PC from uh, Amazon and you order batteries, you'll get a host of different choices. 
by the way, the number one battery brand in America today, in case you don't know, is Amazon. Okay? Think about that. Number one brand. Uh, they don't spend any money on advertising either. There's no bunny or anything like that. Anyway, uh, and then he said, if you go to Alexa, because Alexa appeals to people who are even lazier than those who don't even want to go on the PC and say, I want batteries. You just say, Alexa, I want batteries, double A, and she's got your credit card information, got your address. You don't have to say anything but that. But now, after the Professor Galloway statement, now she'll give you a list of brands. But before he, he wrote that piece, you were getting Amazon batteries from Alexa, and you're getting a choice on the PC. So consumers served. The consumers been served, right? It's interesting. Right. It's, but it's, it, it, you, you've got to be aware and be on your toes. Look, I think it's a great, it's a great service. I use it. Yeah. I try to use Jet and Google Express as well uh, to spread it around, spread the wealth around right. a little bit. But yeah, yeah, we're good. Um, all right, I'm going to throw it to. We have. Uh, would anyone like to ask a question? We have a couple more minutes. Um, maybe if we have a uh, mic, bring it down here, state your name, and succinctly ask your question. Hi, it's Joseph Mendez, and my question really is the unpredictability of Trump's day-to-day -day positions is what I think is reflected in some of the responses that you got. So why do you think he's less unpredictable than we do? I didn't say that he's, he's less unpredictable. Uh, I said that Every president we've ever had is imperfect, okay? And Trump is no exception to that. I don't want to be a defender of Trump. That's not my role. But I will look, I like to look at results. When we look at a company, we look at EPS, okay? I look at Trump, I look at tax legislation, and I look at the other things I mentioned, UN, Pakistan, etc. And those, to me, are really important. Now, so I'm willing, to this point, maybe not ever, not forever, but to this point, put aside some of the other stuff and say, I'm, I'm a results-oriented guy, and I'm happy with what he's done. I mean, you've got a mar you're, you're here because you must like the markets. Okay, the markets have been great. Okay, but more importantly than the market has been great, You've got a tax bill today that automatically brings back this offshore cash once and for all. You've got a tax rate that allows companies to be competitive around the world. And my, I pay state and local taxes, and I'm not happy about that, that it's not deductible. But I'm willing to make the sacrifice because I think I will make it up on the other end because the corporate earnings are going to go up and the investment in this company is going to go up and there's going to be more demand for employment. And to me, that's real important. So, you know, there was a lot of talk over the last 16 years before Trump, Obama and Bush, but this guy's gotten something done in the first year. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, do we have a non-Trump related question? <laughs> Do you have a non-Trump? Okay, you can ask. Not to be too censorious. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about the actual communications with boards? 
um, and what the differences were in something like Bank of New York Mellon, where you talk for three months and then Ed's on the board, uh, compared to something like Procter & Gamble, where it's a bitter $60 million proxy fight. And what the difference is in your communications with those boards and their communications to you, uh, and what caused the two different outcomes? You know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I'll tell you that the places that I've had proxy fights is when I have never been given the opportunity to meet with an entire board, either in its entirety or its segments. I never met with the entire board of Heinz. I never met with the entire board of DuPont. And I ne still have not met with the entire board of P&G, in whole or in part. And I think that's very interesting. Every other place we've gone, we've had the ability to present our white paper to a board. Maybe they couldn't all get together, so we travel two or three different places. But we would take them to the white paper and explain to them what we saw that was great opportunity to get the company better. And at those three places, we, were, we asked, but were never granted an audience with the board. But at DuPont, where we lost, we got 46%. The three index funds voted against us. If one of the index funds just didn't vote, we would have gotten on the board. But that's okay. They voted against us. I stood up at that annual meeting. I congratulated management on the win. And I said, unless things change, we will be back here next year. Okay? And I didn't say it in a nasty way. And I said, unless you change the way you do things, you're going to miss your next quarter and your next quarter and your next quarter. So what happened? They missed the next quarter. And then... The next quarter, the chairman took early retirement. And they put Ed Breen in as acting CEO. Do you know what his first action was? He invited us to present to the board. First thing he did, we went down and we presented just 50 pages, not our normal 100, 50 pages, and 45 of them were polite gotchas, okay? And the last five were, here's the things you need to do to restore health back to DuPont. Option number one, first choice, merge with Dow and break up into three separate companies and make this guy, Ed Breen, permanent CEO, not acting CEO, because we need a real full-time leader going forward. We leave. Within a week or two, they make him permanent CEO. He calls and says, I want to, and now this is all public. It's all in the, the proxy statement. He says, I want to come see you guys. He comes to the office. He says, I need your help, but I need you to sign a confidentiality agreement. We sign. He says, I want you, I've begun discussions with Dow. I want you to help me do the deal said, fine. We then call Andrew Liveris up. Andrew and I know each other. I said, Andrew, you got to sign it. CEO, chairman of Dow. The CEO of Dow. said, Andrew, you got to sign a CA. He squiggled around. I said, sign it. He signed it. Okay. <laughs> that, 
Those Imagine that guy squiggling around. What? You're just a bad image. Those, it's a bad visual. <laughs> the, the, those merger talks took place at my house. Okay? There wasn't a banker there. They got paid, but they weren't there. And they called in and said, can you tell us what's going on? This is all public. Can you tell us what's going on? When we shook hands at my house, 24 hours later, the deal was announced. And then our CA, this confidentiality agreement, fell away. Then we, we didn't like the way the company was structured. And we said, we then went back, signed a new CA, met with the Dow board and the DuPont board, and said, these pieces have to move from the new material co, which is Dow, into specialty chemical. They agreed to that, the stock went up, and the deal closed. So that's the kind of role we can play, not even being on the board, but that's when you have a CEO who's got great confidence in himself, like Ed Breen, okay, who brought us into the boardroom, sought our advice, and sought our help. And that's what we need. One last question from you all, and then I have one for you all. Uh, non look, can we make it a, yeah, what are you, you're, you in the front. You have a, yeah, get a mic. Hello, uh, my name is Kwasi Portahill. I work at Thomson Reuters. So my question for you is a two-part question. Um, have you ever negatively been impacted by passive investing? And do by you, what? Uh, passive investing. And do you see active investing resurging? I have been negatively impacted. I was negatively impacted at, at DuPont, okay, where they all voted against me. Two of them learned their lesson in P&G. Uh, I, I, think, I think active investments, investing will come back. You've had a runaway market in a certain group of stocks which have moved the whole market. And the ETFs have benefited by that. I think when you get to a market that just doesn't go in one direction, I think you'll have a need for good, sound stock picking. And I think, I think that active investing will come back. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. But most of all, thank you, Nelson. Thank we you. appreciate you. And there's an open bar in the back. So please enjoy yourselves. So there you have it. After listening to one of the most successful uppity investors, we asked folks to bet on which companies they thought might be most vulnerable to an activist onslaught. Wells Fargo and Under Armour top the list, but they don't really meet Nelson's criteria if you listen to the podcast. I won't tell you who he secretly voted for. Anyway, that's all for this week's episode of The Exchange. This podcast was produced by the one-of-a-kind Ben Kellerman. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. Thanks for tuning in. Happy New Year and adios. Adios.